Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures, who run a variety of workshops on self-development and sexuality in Australia. My name is Rog. Hi, Jolie. Welcome to the show. Um, Would you be able to introduce yourself for us a little? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Dr. Jolie Hamilton, and that is the last time you need to refer to me as doctor. It's nice to have the title, but then I drop it. So I am the relationship coach for couples who color outside the lines. So obviously, part of what I do is talk about non-monogamy. And my specialty is in jealousy. I specialize in jealousy because it's my academic area of study. And I studied to be a Jungian and archetypal psychologist specifically. So what that means is I take the unconscious really, really seriously. And I absolutely love conversations about non-monogamy and polyamory that really go deep and dig under just our surface understandings of like, okay, so you like to have sex with more than one person. We we can get deep. That's where my work usually goes. I cannot wait to get jealous with you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. I'm a jealousy enthusiast. Let's do it. <laughs> um, just before we get there, um, can you tell me a little bit about your story and how you come to be uh, in this very niche particular realm of counseling? Yeah. So I specialize in this because when I left the monogamous world that I was all I knew for my first 32 years, it was all I knew. Um, I jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. I left monogamy behind and entered into a triad. And I made every single mistake in all of the books behind me, like all of them. I I nailed it. I did it badly so well, so well. Yeah. And um, as you do, and at that comment. point in time, the the skills you've got—they're not poly skills; they're monogamous skills. Like all of our conditioning and all of our socialization is about how to be monogamous and how to get jealous and how to be confronted. And um, right. it, it's a, it's a hard spot to start. It is, and it. Somebody asked me just the other day. So, what can um, monogamous people learn from non-monogamous people, and vice versa? And I said, okay, let me answer the first one. For one thing. The way that non-monogamous people deal with jealousy over time, the way they learn to handle jealousy, we could definitely translate that into monogamy. There's also stuff around communication and and ownership and possessiveness. But yeah. in the reverse, when I ta- when I think about what can non-monogamous people learn from monogamous people, I think, well, that's not really an apt question because we grew up monogamous. Like we grow up in the culture, even if we have some exposure, even if we were, well, my own children, I have seven kids, they're exposed to non-monogamy, but we still grow up in this cultural norm. We grow up in this container and then it's what surrounds us. It's what's in our, our mythology and our soap operas and our reality TV and our social media. So it's not really true that monogamous skills transfer over to non-monogamy. And like you said, a lot of them actually actively undermine what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish. So yeah, it's yeah. not surprising that I made every mistake in the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, funnily enough, uh, I, I have a uh, an on and off relationship with jealousy. I get jealous with some partners under some circumstances some of the time. Um, but interestingly, in monogamy was when I was most jealous uh, in that the partner I was with had had a more adventurous history than I had and I was just insecure, dot, 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 blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, I love the way it's not limited to one or the other. Um would you agree that if you're doing the monogamy thing, you can sort of coast along on a fairly well-defined program, 
um, when you're in non-monogamy, it forces you to get a little more professional, a little more focused about how you're doing your relationships. I wish that were true. I like, like, I think in theory it's true. Like in our head, that's how it works. However, what I, what I do all day, every day is help people who are either right at the starting blocks or many years into non-monogamy. A lot of us really, really skip a lot of very important steps. There's a reason I got really methodical about how I teach people to, yeah, do some deep programming, but also just learn all the skills. A lot of people imagine that relationships should come naturally. So while you could follow the default programming in monogamy, that doesn't really work out. I don't think you can really have a conscious relationship of any kind, no matter how many, how few partners you have, but people do. But does it work? I would say not well. Not so Um, much. And I don't, unfortunately, I don't think that just shifting to non-monogamy does the trick either. We really have to enter into a state of deciding that we're relationship people, which means we're going to learn about relationships. We're going to do the work. We're going to commit energy to this. We're going to invest in relationships as like a topic of interest. Yep. And not everybody does that. I wish they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, so is it a little like um, if you just kind of coast along without focusing a huge amount on your relationships, maybe in the monogamy model, you can still tell yourself that you're doing the right things because it sort of looks all right from the outside, although we agree that that's probably not a great way to have a monogamous relationship. But in non-monogamy, the wheels are going to come off and it's going to be much more obvious. I think, yeah. And if we go by the numbers, the wheels come off in monogamy too. You can convince yourself all the time that in like in monogamy, you can convince yourself. And then when the wheels come off, you can usually shift all the blame to your partner and be like, it didn't work because X, Y, Z, we can project it. And there's really just the two of us and nobody else has seen the inside of that relationship. So it's really easy. Yeah. Mm. So absolutely. You can create a nice tight container where you will never have to take ownership of what your stuff was in that relationship, whether it winds up working out beautifully or whether it winds up working out for longevity, but you're sort of dead inside or whether you just end it all because it was just awful, but you don't have to take responsibility because the monogamous story will tell us how we, how we deal with it. It it will uphold your mythology, but you're right. If you shift into a non-monogamous paradigm, if you're going to do things at all well, you're going to have to get conscious. You're going to have to reflect. And if you don't do those things, um, well, in my experience, not only will you experience jealousy, I mean, that's the least of your worries, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, you'll experience jealousy, but monogamy doesn't protect you from jealousy either. But you're also going to experience all of the same relationship struggles that we have with one partner, but times all of your partners. So (laughs) yeah, it's tough. (laughs) Yeah. The math yeah. checks out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it multiplies. Um, I love what you said about in uh, – I'm just on the way to the, the, the question I'm like most dying to ask you, but uh, just a little thought on the way there. Um, you mentioned about in, in the monogamous model, uh, what goes on there tends to be hidden between just those two people. And I'm just reminded that um, one of my happiest moments in poly is when I get to a situation where I've got a couple of partners that know me well enough that they can actually help each other out and support each other in their relationship with me. And I'm like, that is winning. Yes, 100%. Like that's, it's winning. It's There, there is something profoundly like, 
human about it. Like if we lived together in societies where that was normal, it wouldn't even just be partners. It would also be our siblings would know our partners and we'd all live in villages and all right there. So there's something very normal. It feels right in the body and not everybody gets that. So when you do like when your partners can tease you together, just like, <laughs> Awesome. Like, yeah, goals. You yeah. Have a, a level unlocked. You, yeah. You've landed. Yeah. That, yeah. They realize there's something about that that has to just be so open and so transparent and so unhidden and just so much care. Yeah. The sweet spot. Yeah. All right. So, um, um, the question I've been, as I think about like having a chat with you today, I've been most excited about this question over the last couple of weeks. So, jealousy is almost always experienced as a negative. Yeah, in the moment, mm. people are like, are oh, jealous. Ah, oh, damn, this is horrible. How can I make this go away? Um, I want to know what's the positive and can you go as far as saying how is jealousy potentially the best thing that can happen to a person or to a relationship? Yeah. So I have a podcast called Playing With Fire and I made an episode about how jealousy is the best thing that ever happened to me because jealousy has wisdom. It has profound wisdom, like deep, deep embodied wisdom. But yeah, you're totally right. 100% right. Most of the time people describe like this awful dropping of their stomach, constricting, twisting, gnarls, like they don't want the feeling of jealousy. And it's a threat response. Like it is about feeling like there is a threat to a valued relationship. So obviously people aren't generally looking for it, but I have two pieces of good news. One is that when we open ourselves up to jealousy as a teacher and a guide, right? It can lead us to connect to our partners. If we remember to turn our focus to our partner, not the perceived interrupter. And if we remember that the jealousy is a, it's an emotion happening inside of us. The emotion itself is only going to last about 90 seconds. Then after that, it's, are we ruminating? Are we perseverating? Like, are we just getting caught in a loop and telling ourselves a story? Those are two different things. The second big win from jealousy is, you know, one of the emotions jealousy can pack along with it is erotic energy. So jealousy for many people is highly sexually arousing, but that feels twisted up. So if you can free up your energy around jealousy and free yourself from feeling like it means something's wrong and bad, or it means that your partner is wrong or bad, or that you are shameful for feeling it, check under the hood. See, about 30% of my study respondents have said that jealousy is erotically arousing for them. And if it mm. is, all of a sudden we have a whole new potential. And just think about it. What's at the heart of all cuckold fantasies, right? What's at the heart of so many erotic kinky fantasies? There's a tinge of jealousy. So once I learned to leverage jealousy that way, I'm like, oh, bring it on. I want more, like, bring it to me, serve it on a plate. I will eat it up. That doesn't mean I don't also suffer sometimes. I do. Yeah. Yeah. But it can yeah. be delicious. Huh. Um, I, I know for, you remind me for myself um, at times when I've been jealous or envious or left out of a partner's interactions with a, with a third party where we've got permission and consent for my partner to tell me intimate details of their um, activities, having sex with my partner or some kind of sex or interaction while they're telling me blow by blow um, uh, re report backs. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yes. Creates this sense of like being able to share in the joy of that other experience and just eroticize the whole thing. And wow, that kills the jealousy. 
Exactly. And we know that like, um, so um, my colleague, Dr. Marie Tuin has done some studies on compersion and one of the assets of compersion is for many people that it can increase our access to, to compersion, to have shared sexual uh, connotations around that jealousy. Right. But but we have to gain consent. We have to create a, a container where it's safe to do that. Yep. Those things are possible, but like you have to imagine that they're possible. So that brings me nothing but delight to hear that you're like, you're creating <laughs> that safety so that you can get all that juice out of it. Cause it is, it's, I mean, it's really fabulous. And if you don't have permission to share details, I have still found many ways to play with it because if you don't have permission to share details, you can still play with the jealousy together. You know, you can masturbate while a partner's on a date and intentionally allow yourself to just imagine into it. Yep. It's your imagination. You get to do with that, with that what you want. Yeah. You can also allow your partner to talk about other things, other other imaginal fantasies that still let you play into your jealousy and just feel it mm. while they're also in full approval of you. They love you. They're with you. Nice. <clears throat> Um, I love also with the point about masturbation at the end of the day, you've always got yourself. You are always there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you exactly. are never flaky. You never turn up at the wrong times. Um, you got and yourself. And you know babe. all your tricks. Yeah, you're right there. Yeah, yeah. And um, and you can also extend and ex expand on those tricks like self-dating, whole other area. Um, I'll show you mine if you show me yours, by which I mean, would you be up for like a little personal share of what have you gotten out of jealousy? Like when you've looked into times when you've been jealous, what's like something comes to mind where you've been like, wow, that was a unexpected bonus or that was really beneficial? Yeah. One of the, one of the largest um, moments like stands out. It just, it, it jumps off the page at me is um, my partner is a very shy dater, very, like very, very shy. He's this beautiful a conventionally attractive human um, who has this wonderful voice and he's so lovely and he totally is terrified of like starting up those conversations. So the thing is that often I don't have to experience jealousy around him in particular because he's a shy dater. But when he does, it means that the jealousy can be all the larger with that particular partner. And so there was this one time when he was he was out on a date. And I, I, I just, I had this sense while he was gone that it was particularly good. I just got that, I got that ping like, oh, this is really working. This one's really, really working. And he came home with a look on his face. I haven't seen for years and years. I just, I just haven't. And wow. when he walked through the door, I was like, wow, 10 years ago, me would have freaked the fuck out. Would have just totally lost it. Because mm. that look on his face would have been a huge threat to me. Mm. But what happened was I saw the look on his face. I knew it wasn't about me. And yeah. I registered that jealousy. Like I, I, I used my own steps. I was like, register the jealousy right there. It is in my body. And then as soon as I did, I was able to breathe enough space to be like, don't react now. Let yourself be with that. And it wound up turning into this beautiful growth moment where I got to observe him stepping out of his comfort zone, doing the thing and having this delicious encounter, just like you're naming, like he gave me the blow by blow and it was fantastic. So it was a win-win for everyone involved, but I could have ruined it in that moment. And the, the huge, the huge moment for me was realizing I didn't wreck it. And I mm. would have years ago, wow. I, I would have wrecked yep. it by getting angry yep. and, you know, throwing yep. the thunderbolt at him. 
it's a touching, wistful moment where you see that um, energy and passion and let's say new relationship energy in a partner or that energy, that enthusiasm, that look that you maybe haven't seen towards yourself for a while, particularly like long-term relationships are different. Um, and uh, well, yeah, touching. I, yeah. Yeah, I feel for you in that moment. And wow, what an incredible job of not reacting. Right. Just Bravo. don't freak out. <laughs> <laughs> um, mine would be yeah. um, uh, there was uh, one particular occasion uh, with a partner um, where, you know, jealousy had historically been kind of low level and easy enough to gloss over the top of or do something else or masturbate or, or see if I could get a date coinciding on that night but this one particular occasion i was like home alone that same vibe as you bit of a sense of oh yeah this just feels and i've seen the signals of how they're talking about it and how excited they are and it was like i don't know their fourth-ish date or something like that things going well uh, and i just realized that um yeah i was not going to be able to gloss over ignore this one so i remember just sitting down on my lounge room floor just going all right what happens? Is it going to kill me if I just like open up to this feeling and, and just let it all in and let's just see where it goes out of curiosity. Um, and it was, you know, it was teary, it was snotty, it was messy. There was red wine involved. And, but what I, what I got out of it picking apart was um, there was some information. There was, there was a fair bit of information in there for myself around some things I needed to do differently for myself. There was confirmation that that particular relationship was fine, but that there were a couple of edits and tweaks that I needed to make um, and that I did need to bring my partner's attention to their pattern in uh, new relationship energy because they're a little bit um, focused on whatever's in front of them and they can forget other things. Um, so there was like one, there, there was a few bits of really useful information uh, about myself and the other to, to draw out of that. And once I'd gotten that, jealousy disappeared. Um, yeah. on, on that particular evening, I was just like, right, take a note to myself. Let's have a chat about that. And I set straight away um, on uh, looking after myself, which included masturbation. <laughs> right. I, I mean, that really doesn't. It, it It's never a bad idea when your partner's on a date. <laughs> no. It's never a bad idea. No contraindications. It's just go for it. <laughs> I am absolutely taking that as a pull quote for this episode. Masturbation <laughs> is never a bad idea. <laughs> Great. All right. Super. Thanks for that, Cher. Um, do you have any tips on how to not make a partner jealous? Oh, you know, so when I teach about jealousy, especially when I'm teaching therapists and counselors and stuff, and I, I, I'll go through all these different types of jealousy. There's so many types of jealousy. Um, and, you know, one, <laughs> there is a whole type of jealousy that is all about provoking right? Like I'm intentionally trying to. So first things oh, first. Oh, like, like game playing. Uh, like, well, there's game playing where at least you'd be consensually going for it. But there is a whole kind of jealousy where a person unconsciously likes to control their partner by provoking jealousy because they receive that jealousy as a love language, basically. It's yeah, not a healthy love language, yeah. but they want it expressed. Fucked up as it is, seeing a partner consumed by jealousy is a way of confirming their love for you. Right? Exactly. So yeah. like when you ask that, the first thing that comes to mind is, hey, do a self-check and, and do a check-in on your on your relationship. Is this 
a person who consciously or unconsciously is provoking jealousy. And if it's consciously or even just in the periphery of their consciousness, I would say it's time to really have a conversation about whether you can make that a consensual play game. Can we convert that into erotic energy? Or if this is unconscious, is this actually an abusive situation? Is this actually an unhealthy relationship dynamic? And if it is, get thyself to a counselor right away. Like if you're going to try to keep that relationship, you need to get that that jealousy stuff unpacked. And if it's unconscious, then they're probably going to get you into all kinds of tangles trying to prove how they're not doing it. So let's just say though, beyond that, many of us accidentally instigate jealousy. And the very first most human reaction I can think of when it comes to jealousy is when I feel it, to turn my point my fingers outwards and be like, you stop doing whatever you're doing so that I don't have to feel this way. Yeah. And and the reality is that my changing, you know, my partner changing their actions may or may not address my feeling anyways. So it's a tricky thing to say, what can I do to help, you know, to not trigger my partner's jealousy? Because first I want to know, well, how does your partner feel jealous? Like what things are triggers? Because if your partner is triggered, by things that are well within your agreed upon negotiated relationship um, configuration, then what you have there is, is your partner taking full responsibility for their self-care? You know, if you're acting in accordance with your agreements, is this actually a way where your partner is coercing you, right? Like, are they actually saying, yes, 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 you have freedom. And I'm going to feel horrifyingly jealous and blame you for that. And I'm going to make that your responsibility. Jealousy is a tricky issue, right? There's me jealousy and there's we jealousy and they both exist. Um, So now one place, one place though, that we can definitely all address is actually getting an integrity about not just our agreements, but what's the subtext of what we're doing? Because a lot of us do, we, we make these, we move stuff out of, you know, implicit expectation over into explicit agreement when we get poly and we're like, okay, I'm doing this and I'm doing it well. But then there's always the subtext, right? So there's, um, oh yeah, but you know, I still flirt when I'm here and, and that's not really in or out. It's in this gray zone, right? Like, or I, I'm, I'm not supposed to date my coworkers, but I do date them as long as my partner doesn't know, or I did like anything that's in the gray zone of your relationship agreement. If it's in a gray zone, you're probably going to trigger jealousy stuff. Mm. And then the really simple thing, are you paying attention to your partner? Not, not about keeping things equal. Cause I don't believe that there's such a thing as equal or balanced, but yeah. are you, are you investing in a current relationship or are you a person who is constantly pulled into NRE? Are you constantly pulled yeah. by whatever's yeah. right in front of and, you? And would you say if you can manage to uh, cons- uh, provide attention to your original partner in a consistent way, so a way that doesn't like jump and change over time. It, right. And do like- you know how to pay the kind of attention they want? Because, yeah, like, right. I mean, I hear so many people say, well, you know, my love language is, and then they insert, right? Like they tell me like, my love language is um, acts of service. I'm like, well, cool. I don't really care. Tell me what your partner's is because I don't like, if your partner wants words of affirmation, then in order for them to feel attention and loved, that's what you're going to want to provide. So this isn't about us staying in our comfort zone. This is, this would be about like, yeah, can I provide consistent? So let's say that they want words of affirmation or words of reassurance, right? And I'm not a huge love languages person, but it's a a nice shortcut for talking about this. If that's what they want. Yeah. How can I provide that 
on a consistent basis to a degree that actually meets a threshold for them and it feels satiating. And if I can't do that, maybe this relationship isn't isn't really valuable for both of us right now. And not all relationships work all the time. So, yeah. that's well, that's one of the things that jealousy sometimes is telling us. Is saying, is there actually like a fundamental problem in the relationship and some larger scale of restructure that's wanting to happen? Right. Right. Yeah, I love and it. that's not a bad thing. No. Yeah. Hey there, listener. I'd like to make you a little proposal. I love making this podcast for free because it helps me spread the word about sex positivity. But I could use your help in spreading the word just by sharing this episode if that's not too absurd. For every 10 stories that you listen to, please recommend it to someone that might like it too. This is not a real contract, for you got no say. I would if I could frame it some other way. And if sharing's not for you, that's fine. There's nothing to do. Please listen without guilt to this podcast I built. What about if I'm um, if I'm wanting to not make a, let's say, a primary-ish partner jealous, I don't love the language, but um, in the absence of better language, let's say, if I want to not make a primary partner jealous uh, and I'm having uh, exciting new NRE and dates with someone else, would you say it's better if I obfuscate and hide the details of the new joy I'm having? Or would you say it's better if I'm uh, upfront and transparent and share in um, as honest detail as I possibly can? You know, I think that has a lot to do with... I, I, I may have slightly led that question. Yeah, yeah. So I, the first thing I'll always come back to is, what's your agreement around that? Because I don't believe that there's a right way to handle any relationship situation, but I have clients who I work with who transparency helps them feel safe. Mm. I have other clients who are like, oh, hell no, I do yeah, not right. want your details. And so mm. I don't think there's a cut and dry answer, but... What I have noticed is people who love transparency and people who love privacy marry each other over and over again. It's not smart, but humans are kind of silly. So <laughs> here we are, um, just like okay. extroverts marry introverts, right? Like we just, yeah. we, we bond up in this way. So what I would say is your partner's going to read your energy regardless. Like human beings are energy reading machines. We just do that. So I would not ever suggest that obfuscating will help. It won't work. It just won't work. However, the degree of detail and when you communicate it, mm. those matter a ton. Please mm. do not communicate at a time when your partner's about to walk into an important Zoom meeting for work. Mm. Like that's just common sense. Um, and that might include needing to be careful about when you're bopping around the house half naked, like super joyful about this date you just came home from. Yeah. Like we really have to take context into account now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, love your point about um, people that like uh, openness and transparency tend to um, wind up with people that like privacy. Uh, what's with that? Who designed it and why is it so shit? Right. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. What the hell? <laughs> you know that old Paula Abdul song, Opposites Attract? I'm like, yeah. I, mean, I wish I could argue, but there we are yeah. screwing ourselves because we love to choose what will teach us. Yeah, it's a learning opportunity when you're when you're with someone who's got a, a different or what I was taught as like um, 
complementary edges to yours in that you sort of fire off for each, off each other a little bit. Uh, so there's exactly. learning and growth opportunity there, even though most of that's going to be difficult. Exactly. <laughs> and over the long term, I mean, I married somebody who's just so different from me. My anchor partner is just, we are we like uh, on any personality scale of any type, we're going to re- register as complete opposites. And in the early stages, we looked like we were identical because we were all projecting on junk all over each other. So it seemed so like good. we were just so a match made in heaven. Yeah. yeah. Well, 14 yeah. years later, and I'm like, oh, we're actually very oppositional. And it's core issues like that, like transparency versus privacy, which become these persnickety, constant arguments, unless we can acknowledge that this is just a fundamental difference. And we have to learn to respect the differences, which means from like from my side, if I want my partner to know details, I might have to say to him, hey, I'd love for you to ask questions about the date I was on. Mm. Would you please do that now? Because he's not going to think too automatically because he's a privacy person. I might have to say to him, hey, could you please ask your date if it's okay for you to talk to me afterwards, because I like to hear details. Would you just get consent, please? Because he's not going to yeah. think to. Yep. We have to actually make those requests. And this is, I mean, I'm talking every day for 14 years, we've been making those requests of each other and we still have to make them because our natural settings are just different. Yeah. They're just different. Yep. 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 Amazing. I'm going to jump to a uh, listener question uh, relates. We've sort of covered this a little bit. Um, essentially, it's um, broadly, please discuss attachment security and insecurity as it relates to poly. Specifically, how do you find security in poly? And what do you do if you're ethically on board, but emotionally are hit for six? Um, oh, so, yeah. Okay. Rough. Rough. <laughs> but yeah. So, so many people, I think of polyamory as you can be either oriented that way, you can be philosophically aligned, or you can just choose it, right? I happen to feel like it comes right up out of me. It's natural, but I it was hard for me to choose it still. Other people are like, yeah, philosophically, I'm like there. I'm so with it. But then when the shit hits the fan, they're like, what do I do? I can't deal with this. And oftentimes we are we are pointed to attachment theory as sort of the panacea to, to show us why this is so hard, why yeah. we struggle with it. And unfortunately, I hear more and more people saying, I'm looking for secure attachment as if it's something that happens to you. Secure attachment doesn't happen to you. You're going to create a sense of security by nurturing yourself, by nurturing relationships that go beyond just your sexual and romantic connections, nurturing a community of support and making it okay to have more than one connection, like making it really okay, which might require really unpacking unconscious beliefs that are just undermining you time after time after time. And one of those beliefs, oddly enough, can actually be being too attached to your attachment style. So you go take an attachment quiz. I go take one. I'm going to show up as disorganized attached. Okay. So I take that. Now I'm like, great. I'm avoidant and anxious. That's the worst kind to be. And I start getting attached to this. My partner takes it and shows up like avoidant. And then I have this girlfriend who shows up as anxious. And we all start saying, I am the anxious one. I'm an avoidant one. So yeah. No. Yeah. No. You get so attached to that. Then you you're you're not able to actually work with the relationship as is. And I want you to just say, like, that is just a lens to look at yourself through. And there are attachment theory is just a theory. I'm a psychodynamics person. It's just a theory. And it does not bear out everywhere. Yeah. 
We seem to be a species that really likes to be able to categorise ourselves, uh, um, like looking at this both around attachment theories, uh, obviously Myers-Briggs fix, fits into this um, arena as well, and even right through to diagnoses around well, where you are on the spectrum and what your particular neurospicicity is. Um, and there's that funny little line that obviously there's, there can be an incredible usefulness in going, all oh, right, okay, that tells me a little more. This is information about what I'm like as a person, maybe. Uh, and there's a usefulness because you can go, um, all right, I can stop expecting the rest of the world to come to my party because it's just my party. But then there's a uselessness to that. If you get in a sense of, well, that's me and it's fixed and it's my brain and it's hardwired and there's nothing I can do about it. And now I might as well just go into battle. Right, right. And that's so I I am a natural taxonomist. I I'm a Myers-Briggs ENTJ. So okay. I I love things to be clear, to be logical. I am an extroverted thinker. I like to organize other people's thoughts. I and I love to categorize things. I love it so much that when I was a little kid, I would put labels on things. And I was not like in a in a in a hoarding house labeling things is a big job. Um, but if you can take that desire to categorize and you can use the labels, if you try the label on and you put it on and you say, hi, I am. And like, and now you've got this like long label of all these things you are. Yep. Yep. That to me is where I'm now in identification. I am my labels. That's different from holding that on a clipboard and saying, hey, these things describe me. And I'm going to look at them and I'm going to look at all the different ways other people have figured out to help me live a better life. And I'm going to use those labels to help me be intelligible to other people, to help me, to help other people know who I am. So I, I just, I try to do that every time I catch myself trying to put that hi, I am sticker on my chest to be like, wait, let's peel that off. That label set is for me to be working with yeah. and, and it should be written in pencil because I get to addend it when I find new things out about myself. Nice. And if ever, I think there was an example of how uh, these things are nowhere near as fixed as we think they are, just look at how you can be really jealous with one partner and not remotely jealous with another. Oh, so, so easily, so easily. And you can, and you can flip a switch on so many qualities. I mean, I can be, I, I can be different ways in any yeah. context, you know, it, like invite me to my family's Christmas party and I am all of a sudden an introvert who can't talk to anyone. You invite me to a nice play party and I am the first one with my clothes off in the middle of the dance floor. <laughs> context matters. Yes. Yes. Super. Um, Okie dokie. Um, what are some of the classic pitfalls you see people walking into? So either, uh, I guess uh, this could be either... Um, People that are like uh, monogamous-ish couples who are taking their steps towards opening up or people who have maybe individuals who have had the thought of going, huh, I think there's something that makes sense about uh, Polly. Let's, uh, let's give it a go. Um, what, are the, what are the first time mistakes or the early stage mistakes you see people making? Yeah. One of the big ones is not identifying their reason for dating. Like if you're going to go beyond the, the, particularity that you're in right now, whether that's from a single spot dating, looking for monogamy, or whether that's from a paired up spot where we're like, we're doing this monogamy thing together, whatever it is, if your next step is, okay, let's see about trying something. Most people just rush onto an app or rush into asking out someone that they've kind of had their eye on in an odd way for a while without considering any of their actual desires, any of their actual needs, without grieving the loss of the imagined future. So there are a whole bunch of steps. When I work with people, the 
I work with people over the course of an entire year just to begin opening, just to begin that process. And that's from, from my perspective, that is the bare minimum you should expect for time to let your, your nervous system like adjust to this new paradigm. So that right there is just so different to the way most people wander into things like a year compared to most people, as you say, just like uh, give it a shot on their first date. Right. Like, yeah, it'll be fine. Or I see people who are single and they'll just like change their, their app from like seeking monogamy to open to either. And they basically just looked up a definition or heard a story from someone and they're like, sure. Yeah. This is a paradigmatic shift. This is changing your worldview. And that means you're, you're flipping the whole kaleidoscope. So, you know, that moment in black Panther, when the whole scene turns upside down, Mm -hmm. that's where you are. You're going to want to reorient yourself. I made this like really, really strategic and it's because I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I went back to school and got a bachelor's master, two master's degrees and a doctorate studying this stuff. And when I did, I was like every step of the way, I was like, this is really hard because all the relationship books out there, they're still just telling you a way. Even if I were to write down my way, it's still just a way. It's going to take you time to find your way to a new paradigm. Yeah. There's something about, um, again, talking about us as a species and talking with you as a fellow student of psychology and and self-awareness and development. There's something about all of that and relationships and sex where there's an assumption that we should somehow just know how to do it. And it makes it so much harder to reach out and seek help. Like sex is a skill like anything else. And if you put no work into developing those skills, you're going to have a certain level of skill. self-awareness likewise and obviously uh poly it's um it's one of those things we just assume that we should be able to be good at if we've made the decision that it makes sense yeah which is so wild it's It's so so wild i so now i've been i've been out and open and dating for 14 years and one of the things that i find very challenging is i meet so many people who are like oh yeah i've been open for 10 years and we're on a date we're on like say the second date and i'm like wow, the problems that they're describing and the way they're talking about relationships are like baby problems. They're like first year problems. And those those first year problems, if you're in the first year, cool, fine. I am totally down to be chill with that. But if you're 10 years in and you still have not gotten to the bottom of this stuff for you, not for the world, like it's my job. I make it my business to get to the bottom of this in a big way. But if you haven't even figured out how to do this inside of yourself, I don't think you've taken this to the level you can because the 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 real gift of being poly is that it presents to you an opportunity not to have a lot of sex but to really truly unpack your stuff really yeah. really yeah yeah so funny how it looks like on the outside it looks like sex um yeah. but on the inside you realize that's i mean that's not nothing but it's not no. the whole picture it's the it's the cherry and sprinkles on top, and I love it. But honestly, the whipped yeah. cream is all the psychology I get to talk with people all the time. Yeah, so I guess like these, uh, there's a there's a potential uh, like silver lining around um, what we're talking about about how um, these things do take effort and study. And I guess that's um, I would love to say to new people uh, to this world if you're struggling with it, if it's not super straightforward, that's not a fault on you. That's uh, no, not that's not a failing, and it doesn't mean you're not necessarily great poly or monogamy material. One hundred percent. You, if you're, if you were raised with a true relationship education, please reach out to me because I just want to hear your story. I want yeah. you to tell me what it was like to grow up like that, really yeah. getting that education. 
We didn't, right? Like that is not the norm. That is not typical. And even if your parents did a bang up job and you got awesome sex ed, you still did not get taught how to fuck. You still did not get taught how to really get deep down into your own psyche until you decided to do it. So it's normal to be still just unpacking new areas of yourself in midlife. That's completely the norm. It doesn't, it's not a statement of whether you're like meant for this, cut out for it. It is my belief. And what I have seen is anyone of anyone can choose to do complex relationships really well, but they have to choose to be in it. They have to choose to really like get down in it and be like, I I am in this for my own reasons, not just for sex, but also not just for joy. I am in it to learn about being a human. Yeah. Because then you can really be in the mess. It is a really weird irony of the setup that um, all of the stuff that's meant to prepare us for life. So, you know, most of that's like primary, secondary school, maybe college. Um, it's weird that like obviously you and I have got a bent towards um, polyamory and whatever else, but it's weird that none of that stuff actually sets you up for your relationship or sexual future. Uh, and if you look at where most of your what where your energy and effort and time and joy goes as an adult, you know the relationship component of it is going to be a pretty big part. Right. Even if you're asexual, like, okay, then your friendships, then you're like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's relationship. And I have seven kids. My relationship to each of my kids is a huge part of my life. Relationships will make up. Sorry, sorry, I just got to stop you there. You've got seven kids and you're poly. Yeah. Oh, that can't be right. <laughs> I know, right? I swear, I have seven kids inside seven years. It is wild. Oh, my God. The yeah. listeners can't see my exasperated face. Um, so let me <laughs> interpret. It's just like, wow, respect, yo. And I'm really sorry. I interrupted. You were midstream. We were talking about, um, yeah, where's that relationship education? Where's the stuff that gives you the opportunity to question where you are in the sexuality spread, including asexuality? Right. So in our household, so my kids are now um, between – 15 and 23. In our house, you are expected to come out as straight, as monogamous. You're you're expected to tell, like, we ask questions. We encourage them to come out. It's normal conversation. I mean, they also all attended home births and, you know, like, we've been very normal about this. And yet still, like, they have been in a non-monogamous household since they were little. And still, these kids are like, uh, my friends think that you cheat and I don't know how to explain it. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Or I gave an actual Ted talk on compersion and my kids forget that it's a word. So mm. part of this, remember is even the good lessons we get about relationships. Often we have blinders on to them because we're not there yet. So it doesn't yeah. land. Yeah. Then we have to come back and relearn those lessons. And that, I mean, that is brutal for me as a sex educator. I'm like, Oh, I wish I could save you from this, but I can't, yeah. I have to let them learn in their own time. And you have to open yourself up to the fact that um, you're going to change over time. So you may think you've got it all figured out and then it's going to change and you're going to be learning more. Oh, so yeah, right. So again, it's not fixed. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Cool. Um, was there anything else you wanted to say about um, the, the whoops-a-daisies that people make, like either as couples or, or singles when they're entering into the world of poly? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I don't think gets talked about enough is – when people have an interest, often they keep it a secret way too long. So so either they keep it a secret from themselves or or to themselves where they're like thinking about it and so long that when they finally 
have the gumption to tell someone like it's just built up to this huge thing or they've educated them so much themselves so much that their partner has to like play catch up and it's terrifying and awful. Right. Or as a couple, they talk about it, but they talk about it for so long that it just becomes kind of fantasy material. And then they never figure out what the next step is. So then again, we've built up all this fantasy rather than getting out and doing something. So it's like the two ends of the spectrum. Oftentimes people just jump into the deep end, but also many times we stay in the shallows so long that we really don't, we're just terrified to take any action because now it just feels like a whole ocean in front of us. So really there's a sweet spot in the middle there. And wherever you are right now, I encourage you to like get in up to your belly button, like, you know, feel the water really Mm. be. And if you're in over your head already, it's never, ever too late to ask for support and help. It's never too late. I work with people who have been out and actively poly for twice as long as I have, and they're still looking for help because they've been inside their relationships, getting an outside perspective, whether that's from community coaching or counseling, just it really helps because then you have this bigger perspective of the possibilities. Never too late for that. Uh, I love what you say about how when people get into a particular idea, they tend to, in the background, get fairly well educated and go a fair way down a path before they like maybe bring it up with a partner. And so when it does come out, it's like with this explosion of energy and they're over their edge and they want to go there and they want to drag their partner along. I think there's this moment somewhere around there, even if you let it get that long, but preferably before it, where you need to recognize that you're actually the educator in the relationship on that particular topic and step up and take responsibility for that and do a good job of it. Are you going to need to pace your partner through the stuff that you've been learning about and lay it out in a, you know, come up with a freaking syllabus? Yeah, it is true. Accepting the fact that the longer you mull about it, the more of that educator role you're going to wind up playing. So if anybody's on the fence right right now, sooner is better than later. Um, Also, you can test the waters. You know, you can test the waters by talking about a movie you've heard, a podcast you've heard, and just like test the waters. How how are those waters looking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're in a partnership where you are saying, this, it's my way or the highway, like we have to open. Yeah. Well, then you have to recognize that you've also opened yourself up to the highway. That yeah. might be the end of the relationship. And you have to accept that. And that is not a failing on your partner's part because there is nothing inherently better about polyamory. There's just nice. not. Nice. So. I have um, two quick little thoughts. One is um, as one podcaster to another, one of the reasons we exist is so that other people in relationships can use us and blame us or for their, their thought process and whatever. So it's just like, hey, sweetie, have you thought about that book? Or maybe you want to have a listen to this episode. And people can third party us on the material yes. we produce to do a lot of that heavy lifting. I am 100% here to be thrown that's, under the bus for That's anyone. why we're here. Yep, do it. Consent, full consent, people. Yeah, full consent. (laughs) Happy to be used in that way. Um, My second thought is uh, you talk about uh, moving earlier rather than later. Uh, I remember in my mid-30s when I was pretty sure I was poly, I was still faffing around a lot on the question of when I changed my dating profile and, and I had this question for a long time of what's the right time in the dating cycle to um, come out to someone as poly. I remember for a long time thinking, all right, it's between date one and date two. And needless to say, that wasn't working very well for me because by the time date one has happened, I've already found the monogamous person. Um, and so it's already a mess. So now I know that the time to come out is like, you know, 
Pre. Pre. <laughs> pre. Pre. Yeah. 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 It's so funny how um, I see in particular a lot of cisgender men making like it, it's hard, right? It can be hard to be like you're out there and it's it's true that there it changes who may want to date you, especially if you are yeah. in the, the age bracket where people are pairing up to start families and people don't yet have the imagination for a poly family. Yes. Yes, yes. it does. And, and we're. Oh, we're I was all, just going to say, like, what's the what's the difference? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Do you want to go on dates that don't work? Yeah, I th I think uh, we're all like of, of whatever gender. We're all up against um like sleaze shaming or slut shaming. So so maybe sleaze shaming is more likely to be towards um yeah. cis men, um but slut shaming is more likely to be towards uh, cis cis women. But obviously we're talking about the same thing. Um, exactly. We're all protecting against the accusation that we are womanizers or that we're taking advantage of people or blah 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 blah. blah. Yeah. 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 It's it it does change what it's like to date a bit. But I I one of the things that one of the phenomenon that I see happening is men um have come to me and they're like, "Well, I I don't want to tell people ahead of time cuz I want to get on that date." And I'm like, "You want to go on the date where you have to say the awkward thing that you didn't even want to say anon like anonymously on your profile?" Do you really want to have that conversation? And usually then they're like, oh, no, I don't actually want to have that awkward conversation. Or what if I just never have it then? Like, what mm -hmm. if I now I'm like five dates and six dates, what, like every date that goes by, that gets uncomfortable too. Now there is, I think there is a, a bit of a twist here too, though, because when I am in the dating phase, there's something happening right now where a lot of people are just, they're just dating. They're not monogamous or non-monogamous. They don't really know what they're doing. They're just dating. They're casually dating. And they make that perfectly clear on their profile. They're not married and they're just dating. You are you don't have to claim non-monogamy to be dating more than one person casually. Like, mm -hmm. And that I feel like is, is a thing that it's okay. Like we don't have to. You might be non-monogamous and dating casually, but you could also just be a person who's like, yeah, I'm not down to have big relationships right now. And so yeah. I'm dating more than one person. And yeah. 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 I'm reminded that, um, yeah, regardless of gender, so much of our dating and relationship behavior is a response to previous hurts. So not being able to come out up front and say that you're poly is because you've been shamed for it in the past. Not wanting to come out and say, fuck, I love being hit um, is a response right. to being shamed for that in the past or, you know, whatever. Insert whatever right. thing you're into there. Oh, yeah. people, yeah. humans. Human podcast listeners Stop. can't see that I'm touching my heart. Um, I think maybe possibly my last question is another uh, listener question, um, which is around, I mean, this is an irony because we've been talking about don't get caught up on the idea that you are just like one thing. And even if you arrive at something, bearing in mind it changes. But someone was asking about, do you have any tips on divining yourself and where you're at on that poly spectrum, I guess, from um, like a, a very a very main primary relationship that's maybe, shall we say, swinging through to a more of an open relationship, through to a primary partner model, through to relationship anarchy or solo poly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just say, acknowledging again on one level, don't get too caught up on it. It doesn't matter too much and it's going to change. But do you have any tips for people who are confused and trying to work out like where they're at on that spectrum? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I like to ask people, it's the same thing I ask people when they're when they're thinking about a career. Like, tell me how you want to spend your day. How do you want to spend your time? How do you like to communicate with partners? 
tell me about that. And after they described to me, like, how, like, do they like to text a lot? Do they like good morning messages? Like, how do you like to be like pretty much just meet up and then have lots of space? Tell me about how you like to spend your days. Literally describe to me a Monday, then describe to me a Saturday night, describe to me the next Tuesday after they've done that. I can help them decide what their natural inclination right now might be. And then, yeah, remembering it changes. But if you are in a place where right now you really highly prioritize um, your agency, autonomy of time, not having to you know, be too bogged down with other people's living situations, yeah, maybe now is your solo polyamory time. Maybe you're like, this is just the right fit for me now. And maybe you're in a really casual phase. Maybe though, you're a person who's like, I love being all up in other people's stuff. In fact, I love knowing people's kids and I love knowing people's messes and I'm down to be like on their crisis list. Awesome. Maybe um, kitchen table poly is like just right for you now. Mm. And that doesn't mean you're going to find those people, but I want you to start with describing to me, how do you want to spend your day? Because it's the same when I ask my kids, like, I don't ask them what they want to be when they Mm. grow up. I ask them, how do you want to spend your time? If they tell me they want to spend their time outdoors, I don't suggest they become a computer programmer. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, I like listening to you. I'm thinking, uh, I, I keep on having the sense of that's right. Life is about change and poly itself is about change and relationship life is about change. And we want to get like, so when we stumble into a good moment that works, we want to hang on to that forever and assume that that's going to be right for us and everyone that's involved forever. And maybe it's a little bit of an easier path just to go the entire package. It's all constantly about changed. I, I do believe that when we accept that, life actually gets calmer. My, right. my life sounds wild, right? Seven kids and multiple partners and a business life and all of that. And, but accepting that change is the norm minute to minute as well as year to year means that, yeah, and it's all fine. Mm. And that brings great yeah. peace in, in the chaos. Nice. Every day is a great day for our ego to die, as exactly. my bald friends say. Yes. <laughs> Um, all right. Uh, 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 last, last question. Uh, what's one thing you wish you'd been told um, you know, on your journey or like what's one little snippet you'd like to offer the world one way or the other? Yeah. I wish someone had told me that I was going to be reviled for this. And that was actually going to be some of the best news I could get because it was going to give me the opportunity to allow people to leave my life who really did not want me to be who I am. Mm. And that was going to free me, free up so much energy to be who I was already becoming. Oh, so horrible in the moment and so useful in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. And I wish I had known that. Where can people find you? If you're on Instagram or TikTok, you can find me at Dr. Jolie underscore Hamilton. So D-R-J-O-L-I underscore Hamilton, like the musical, nice and simple. And if you are looking to have that conversation where you ask somebody about being poly, I have a conversation for that. If you go to JolieHamilton.com forward slash easy, um, my anchor partner and I had a conversation. We we actually recorded it. So you can give that to your partner. It, we have a guided, like, here's how you do this. So if you're scared to have that conversation, don't let another week go by where you don't, because it's just going to get harder. It's not going to get easier. Hmm. 
Um, thank you for what you're contributing to the world of Polly so generously, and thanks for hanging out and chatting with me about it today. I've really enjoyed chatting. Thanks so much for having me. I'd love to hear what you thought about today's episode. I've created a forum so you can tell me and also chat with other listeners about it. It's at forum.curiouscreatures.biz and there's a link for that in the show notes. Once you've signed up to the forum, which is free and takes less than a minute, navigate to groups and then join the group for curious conversations about sex. And if you liked today's episode, please share it with someone else that might be interested. There's probably a share button right there in your podcast player. Curious Creatures run a variety of workshops, mostly in Melbourne, Australia. We've also got some pre-recorded workshops that you can watch anytime, anywhere. Our workshops are on sexuality, self-development and relationships. You might also want to check out our consent cards. They're a small plastic card with all of the questions you need to ask to give yourself the best chance of getting exactly what you want to the level you want it. There's a version specifically for kink activities and a more general version for everything else. Links to our consent cards are in the show notes. See you soon, friends.